Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for Scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's Word and apply His message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, Sharon presents Part 1 of the Gospel of Luke, Chapter 22. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. Did you see that? Two feasts. Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. Unleavened Bread and Passover are linked together for every Jew. They are in Luke, the first verse here, considered one thing. Unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. They're two feasts, but they were inseparable to the Jews. For Catholics also, these two feasts are inseparable. For Catholics, the Passover and the unleavened bread always go together. Paul told the Corinthians, let us keep the feast, the love feast, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, which is the Eucharist now, the feast of the unleavened bread of truth. This is our mass. This is our mass. The Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life. The other sacraments and indeed all ecclesial ministries and works of the apostolate are bound up with the Eucharist and orientated towards the Eucharist. The Eucharist is everything to Catholics. For in the blessed Eucharist is contained the whole spiritual good of the church, namely Christ himself, our Pasch. And what Pasch is, is a Passover lamb. Christ is our Passover, our Pasch. The liturgy is the summit toward which the activity of the church is directed. So all the activity of the church is directed right here to the mass. And it is also the font from which all her power flows. The power of the church flows through the Eucharist. And it is in the sacraments, especially the Eucharist, that Christ Jesus works for the fullness of transformation of men and women. This is where our healing happens. This is where our transformation happens. The source of all of that is the Eucharist. That's the Passover lamb. Jesus Christ was the final Passover lamb. And the mass celebrates that time and time again. We enter into his same Passover. And it is the highest prayer in the church, the mass. And we pray the mass. We don't go to mass. We pray the mass. The Eucharist is the heart and summit of the church's life. And in it, Christ associates his church and all her members with his sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving offered once for all on the cross to his father. That's what we're celebrating, his Passover, his cross, he, the sacrificial lamb of God. And by the sacrifice, he pours out the graces of salvation on his body, which is the church, his bride. So the mass is an eternal and a perpetual thanksgiving for the sacrifice he made so long ago, that Good Friday. The Catholic priest is under the apostolic authority. He is an ordained minister of the new covenant priesthood of Jesus Christ. And the Catholic priest is in the order of Melchizedek. And we heard about him way back in Genesis 14 when he sacrificed bread and wine and blessed Abraham, our father. He's in Psalm 110, and he's highly mentioned in Hebrews 5, 6, and 7. The priest stands in persona Christi, that's Latin, for in the person of Christ. 
So the mass is the prayer of the body of Christ in the world to the Father, through Jesus Christ, his Son, and in the Holy Spirit. We're praying this prayer to the Father in thanksgiving. And that's why the priest will say in that final Trinitarian doxology after the Eucharistic prayer, through him, through Jesus, with him, with Jesus, in him, in Jesus, we're all baptized into him. Oh God, almighty Father, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all glory and honor is yours forever and ever. And all the people will say with great resounding enthusiasm. It's the great amen. It's the great amen. And it means, yes, I believe, I agree, it is so. Jesus Christ is the final once for all Passover lamb, the lamb of God. And we hear John say in Revelation chapter 5, then I, he had a vision, I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So what John the Baptist said the first time he saw him. And all his disciples left and went over to Jesus. Happy are those who are called to the perpetual supper of the Lamb of God. We enter into that Good Friday, that Paschal sacrifice, and it's called a mystery. It's a big mystery, but his body is endlessly being transformed into the unleavened bread that's blessed by the power of the Holy Spirit. The epiclesis, the spirit comes down, it's blessed, it's broken, it's shared to those who say, amen, yes, I believe it is so. It's a Eucharist, which is a thanksgiving in the Greek, a thanksgiving to God the Father. Endless thanks and praise to God the Father for the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, God's unblemished, perfect Lamb. And in their perfection of unity and their love, a whole nother person, the Holy Spirit. It's a powerful sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. And we want to remember it every time we enter into the Paschal celebration of the Mass. We're entering into that. It exists outside of time and space. So Luke starts this chapter, and this chapter is the institution of the Eucharist, the very first Mass. We celebrate it on Holy Thursday. But the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And for Catholics, these two are inseparable. Christ is the Lamb of God, but he's back with the Father at the right hand of the Father. But he has left for us. He said, I am the bread of life. He didn't say, I am a lamb. He said, I'm a vine, I'm a gate, I'm a good shepherd. In John's Gospel, the seven I am's, he didn't say, I am a lamb. He said, I am the bread of life. So the lamb has transformed himself by the power of the Holy Spirit into unleavened bread. Why unleavened? Leaven is symbolic in the Bible of sin. He's unblemished. He's sin-free. It's unleavened bread. And he becomes unleavened bread, blessed, broken, and shared for us at every Mass. The unblemished, final, Passover Lamb of God. And that Lamb of God becomes unleavened bread for us. The wine becomes his precious blood, true drink indeed. John tells us, why a lamb? God said he would provide a lamb. He promised way back in Genesis that he would provide a lamb when he was taking, Abraham's taking his son, Isaac, the son he loved. He has two, he has Ishmael also, but he says, my only son, the son I love, God is asking him to sacrifice Isaac. And they're heading up Mount Moriah, which is the same Mount Calvary where Jesus was crucified, but they're heading up and he has the wood on his back. And Abraham, he want, the kid, Isaac, wants to know, Dad, where's the lamb? Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham knows his son's supposed to be the lamb. 
But Abraham says, God will provide himself a lamb for my burnt offering, my son. And God did spare Isaac. He said, stop, Abraham, this was a test of your faith. You passed with flying colors. I'm not going to kill Isaac. You don't have to kill Isaac. He won't spare his own son, but this one he will spare. And Father Abraham finds a ram in the thicket, trapped in the thicket of thorns, and he uses the ram for the sacrifice. That place is called Jehovah Jireh. God will provide the lamb. God will provide. That's what it means in the Hebrew. God will provide a lamb. They're still waiting for a lamb. It's on that same Mount Moriah, Mount Calvary, that Jesus, God's only son, is not spared. He becomes the lamb, the final Passover lamb for us. Jesus will be the future lamb of God provided. Jesus, the lamb of God, also caught in a thicket of thorns a crown of thorns on his head, but he won't be spared. It's God's will. The cup will not pass from him. Then we hear about lambs in the book of Exodus, lots of lambs. We learn about saving lambs. They're called Passover lambs. And Moses is instructed by God on the 10th plague of Egypt that they should take a lamb for every household. And if the household's too small for a lamb, then a man and his neighbor next should, these number of persons should all come together and eat their lamb together. So think of this in terms of the mass. They're all supposed to eat the lamb together. It is a communal sacrifice, a communal memorial. The lamb must be without blemish, sin-free, a male. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs together in the evening at the time of the twilight sacrifice. For the Jews, that was three o'clock in the afternoon. That's the hour of divine mercy, the same hour the lamb died on the cross. They were to separate the blood of the lamb from the animal itself, drain the blood. The blood is the lifeblood of the animal. And take that blood and put it on two of the doorposts and on the lentil, on three spots. If you do that, they were supposed to use a hyssop branch to take the blood of the Passover lamb and put it on their doorposts. You see later that Jesus will be that gate. He will be his blood, one, two, three spots, just like that. And the final wine will be offered on a hyssop branch up to Jesus, the final Passover lamb. There's so many connections. They will eat the flesh that night roasted with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Unleavened bread, blemish-free, no sin. Bitter herbs to remember the tears of bondage. They had been in bondage to Egypt for over 400 years. The tears of slavery held in bondage. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. This lamb needs to be fully consumed. Not one crumb can be left behind. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. This is like our Eucharist. If one crumb drops, we're, we're scurrying to pick it up. We used to have patents right under our chin, remember? So we wouldn't drop one drop. The altar boy would have the patent right there for you. The unleavened bread will be symbolic as Eucharistic hosts. The bread of truth, unleavened, no sin. The bread of truth and sincerity. Bread that is blessed, broken, and shared with the community, every consecrated crumb will be respected. Then, in Exodus 12, in the same manner, you will eat it with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. They got to be ready to go. They ate this Passover lamb standing up. They had to be ready. They had to eat it in haste because why? The angel of death was coming. And if they have their doorpost marked with the blood of the lamb, they would be passed over. Death would pass over them. That's why it's called the Passover. The angel of death would pass over them. They had to be ready to go at any second. 
It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will smite all the firstborns in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the little g gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you upon the houses where you are. The blood is a sign. When I see that blood, I will pass over you. And no plague shall fall upon you to destroy you. That blood of the Passover lamb is very, very, very important. This day, it shall be a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast unto the Lord throughout all your generations. You shall observe it as an ordinance. How long? Forever. This will be a perpetual memorial ordinance forever. That says the Lord. Can they do this anymore at the temple? No, there's no temple. It was destroyed in 70 AD. But the Lord said it would be a perpetual memorial ordinance forever. It's being done right here on the altar every Sunday by a priesthood, a valid priesthood in the authority of God. They would have to bring a lamb. It was a required feast. So over a million people would go for Passover in Jerusalem. They would have lambs for sale at different spots and they would have roasting ovens at different spots all set up so the people could roast it. They would take the lamb to the temple. The lamb's throat would be slit and all the blood would be drained into vessels, gold and silver. And the priest would take the vessels of blood and pour them on the altar. And they had drains in the altar and the blood would all drain out over a million. Think of that. All the blood, all the blood for the atonement of sin. Seven days you'll eat unleavened bread. Seven days, a perfection of eating unleavened bread. And you shall put away leaven out of your houses. Put away sin. If any one of you eats what is leavened from the day until the seventh day, that person will be cut off from Israel. He doesn't want them to eat the lamb of God with sin on their souls. We don't want to eat communion with sin on our souls, mortal sin. That's why we go to confession. If we're in mortal sin, we get to confession before we take Eucharist and condemn ourselves. Judgment on ourselves, says Paul in Corinthians. Jesus Christ is that final Passover lamb. John the Baptist knew the moment he saw him, he said, behold, the lamb of God. Behold him who takes away the sins of the world. And there went all his disciples. Year after year after year after year after year, they celebrated the Passover memorial. They entered into that night. What was this blood for on the door if you connect the dots? The atonement of sin. Jesus Christ atoned for our sin on the cross. He was the perfect lamb, the final lamb, and he is the final high priest who offered himself to the Father, and the Father accepted the sacrifice. And he sits now at the right hand of the Father, the blessing hand of the Father, the right hand. He was the biggest blessing that the Father ever ushered in to cancel the curse of sin and death. Death has passed over us because of Jesus, the final Passover lamb. God did provide the lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the once for all Abraham's children, final and perfect sacrifice. The final high priest himself, who's also the perfect victim, who conquered sin, who conquered death. He smashed death. He rose from death. Paul says, death, where is your sting now? Where is your sting? He crushed it. He conquered it. This victorious lamb. The psalmist said he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Messianic psalm. Exodus 12 said, you shall not break a single bone of the Passover lamb. The soldiers broke all the bones to get these bodies off the cross, get it over with quicker. But when they came to Jesus in John 19, they did not break his bones. 
They did not break his legs. And John tells us these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, that not a bone of him shall be broken. You don't break the legs of the Passover lamb. In one house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry forth any of the flesh outside the house. It's very sacred, Eucharist. We don't take it outside. We eat it. We consume it immediately in entirety. We go back to our pew. We kneel down and we commune with Jesus. He's in our temple now and we are communing with him. We don't take it like a wafer and go off somewhere. People steal the host for black masses sometimes. That's because they know it's something very, very, very powerful or why would they be stealing it? No uncircumcised person shall eat of it. You had to be in full covenant to partake in the Lamb of God. Now, some people think it's not friendly when we don't offer people to take our Eucharist that are non-Catholics that come and want to come up. And the good priests explain that you need to be in full covenant with the Catholic Church and all we believe before you can partake in the Lamb of God. The Last Supper is this passage of Luke 22. It's a Jewish Seder Passover meal. And here we go. Jesus took the bread, the unleavened bread, and when he had given thanks, gave the blessing to the Father, he broke it, he gave it to them, and he said, this is my body which is given for you. And what was, what were those apostles have thought? This is my body. And the cup, which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. What? They're never supposed to drink blood. The lifeblood is in the animal. It says in Leviticus, we can't drink blood. This is my blood poured out for you. This is a new covenant. There was always blood with covenant. You know, all that blood that the priests were pouring down, the lamb blood, every covenant in the Old Testament, it's a blood covenant. And then you share a meal. Remember when Abraham slaughtered the animals in Genesis 16, and there was blood everywhere. These 12 are being ordained into a new priesthood. Jesus says, you are those who have continued with me in my trials. As my father appointed a kingdom for me, so do I appoint for you, you 12 that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, Jesus is in the right authority from the Father, and the Father has conferred on him a kingdom, and he is conferring on these 12 a kingdom. 12 is a number of governance in the Bible. Right back in Genesis, 12 hours will rule the day, 12 hours will rule or govern the night. These 12 will be the new governance of the new covenant. And we know that those 12 apostles were sharing a Jewish Passover Seder meal because Jesus himself said, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He knows what's ahead. He knows what's coming. He's told them three times already, and they just went right over their head. For I tell you, I shall not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks... He said, take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on, I shall not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He's not drinking from the fruit of the vine, grapes, wine. He's not drinking that until the kingdom of God comes. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. This is in John's gospel. There were four Passover cups. Jesus has probably taken the third blessing cup and he is not drinking again until the kingdom comes. And now he's on the cross and he says, I thirst. And what do they do? 
Now a vessel full of sour wine, fruit of the vine, was sitting there and they filled a sponge with sour wine and they put it on what? Hyssop. Because hyssop is, I think it's only mentioned three times in the Bible, the whole Bible. Hyssop is what they put the blood up on the lentils with. They put it on hyssop and they put it up to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, Jesus said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Some translations say he gave over his spirit. And boy, did he ever, because the next age will be the age of the Holy Spirit. For I tell you that from now on, I shall not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He drank his last sip from the fruit of the vine, which lets us know that the kingdom of God has come. Upon his death, when he gives over his spirit, he has crushed sin. He has conquered sin on the cross. He'll conquer death when he rises in three days from the grave. But he conquers sin right there on the cross. He crushes the head of Satan. It is finished. The Father has accepted the perfect blood sacrifice for the atonement of sin for all people, all time, who believe. It is finished. It's a once-for-all sacrifice for all time. What is Mass? We enter right into that same Paschal mystery. That night, those three days. When we go to Mass, we are participating in something that exists outside of time and space. Heaven is always having an eternal heavenly liturgy. We on earth join heaven and earth kiss here at the altar in that transubstantiation. We're entering into his Paschal mystery. And I'm going to go through some parts of the Mass so you can see it maybe. The priest starts by saying, brothers and sisters, let us acknowledge our sins and so prepare to celebrate what? The sacred mysteries. This is his Paschal mystery. This is mysterious. This is a mystery. The sacred mysteries are going to take faith to understand because mysteries are hard. We don't get it. So it's going to take some faith, a leap of faith. But Jesus told us in Luke 18 that the things which are impossible with men are possible for God. So it's possible for us to start understanding and entering into this mystery. The Lord said in Luke 17, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, just a tiny speck where you could say to this sycamine tree to be pulled up by the roots and planted in the sea and it would obey you. So it doesn't take much faith. And it is possible as our faith grows and matures that we begin to understand the sacred mysteries. Why do you think all the old people are at daily mass every day? Because they start to understand the sacred mysteries over time. And they're the wisest people we know. And the holiest. Sometimes. An unveiling... Of the mystical body of Christ. That's what the Mass is. An unveiling of the mystical body of Christ. A revelation from God. The sacred mystery is revealed in the Mass for those with eyes to see and ears to hear. And what helps us see and hear better is a contrite heart. And so the people at church, we always start with a penitential act. It helps us see better. It helps us hear better. It helps us be more receptive. It gets rid of that stony heart. And it's called the confidier in Latin, which means I confess or I acknowledge. And it's prayed as a penitential act at the beginning of every mass. And in that, your venial sins are forgiven. So those old people at daily mass are holy because all their little sins are forgiven just by being at the mass, entering into that prayer. Slight sins that do not entail damnation of the soul are forgiven at daily mass by the penitential act. And we say, I have greatly sinned. And we say it in community because our sin hurts everybody. I have greatly sinned in my thoughts and in my words and what I have done and what I have failed to do. 
my sins of commission and my sins of omission. And it reminds me of Luke 17 and those 10 lepers. Jesus is passing by. He's just entered the scene and they're shouting out, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Or the blind beggar in Luke 18 from Jericho. And Jesus of Nazareth was passing by and he couldn't see him, but he, but he heard he was coming and he said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner. How can Jesus resist healing that? A contrite heart. He will not spurn. And then we move into the liturgy of the word. And we read a first reading from the Old Testament. And we pray a psalm together. And we read a second reading from the New Testament, usually an epistle or a letter. And then we all stand up and proclaim, Alleluia, because he has risen from the dead. And then we stay standing for the gospel because it's the word of Jesus Christ himself. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four living creatures are always around the true presence of God. And that's the only thing proclaimed in the gospel can be from one of those four living creatures. Sometimes we incense it. We all stand up. We sing the Alleluia. We stay standing. We listen intently. It's important. It's the true presence of the living God in his word. The incarnate word became flesh and dwelt among us. The four living creatures are always around the true presence of God. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us full of grace and truth. We have beheld his glory, the glory of the only son of the father. We're joining into the eternal liturgy. And in the book of Revelation, John describes a heavenly liturgy of the angels praising God nonstop with the words, holy, holy, holy. So at mass, after the liturgy of the word, we sing holy, holy, holy. And we're joining in that eternal song with the angels. And we're joining into the heavenly liturgy. And in that moment, heaven and earth come together praising God for Jesus' sacrifice, his perfect sacrifice. And around the throne, on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion, Mark. The second living creature, like an ox, Luke. The third living creature, the face of a man, Matthew. The fourth living creature, like a flying eagle, John. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, full of eyes all around, day and night, they never cease to sing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, and who is to come. Because it's not over yet. It's not over yet, friends. It's not done. And we move into the liturgy of the Eucharist. And after the transubstantiation, the priest is going to invite the people to proclaim the mystery of our faith. And we will say, uh, the mystery of our faith, this is the mysterium fidei in Latin, the mystery of our faith. And it's a mystery hidden in God, which can never be known unless revealed by God to us. So it takes that element of faith. There were a lot of mysteries in the Bible. Jesus said he was a temple. It was a mystery to them. They didn't understand it until after he was raised from the dead. Then the disciples remembered what he had said, and they were putting everything together because they had the power of the Holy Spirit illuminating their minds. And they're starting to make all the connections of the mysteries. That was part one of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible studies, visit seekingtruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.